Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> Excuse me, and in verse 12 is where I will begin reading in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 to the end of the chapter, page 809 in the church Bibles, if that would be of some help to you. And as always, when we are done, if you have a question about what we've said or sung or read or about Jesus Christ, I would count it a privilege to try to answer those questions for you when our time together is done. Okay, let's hear the word of the Lord, verse 12. And you'll notice that it's in quotes. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ... And unite them with a prostitute. Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow together so we might pray and ask God for his much needed help. Just a simple prayer. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and to your removal. And now, O glorious, blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. So what we just prayed together was verses 19 and 20 of this chapter in a nutshell. It was written by the gifted hymn writer Charles Wesley in the 18th century. Most people do not pray this way anymore, perhaps, I'm not sure, but perhaps because most people don't think like this anymore. Nevertheless, the reason why we prayed this is because the weight of these verses that we have read this morning is on what it means that exactly, verse 20, if your Bible's open, you'll see this, what it means that the Christian, verse 20, was bought at a price. And what it means exactly that, verse 19b, the Christian is not their own. 
And I say this because there was a couple of refrains that were working its way around the church in Corinth, one of which you'll find in verse 12, as I mentioned at the beginning, and again in the middle of verse 12, and the refrain was, everything is permissible for me. In other words, when the Christians in the church in Corinth wanted to either justify their bad behavior, or perhaps more importantly for all of us this morning, when they wanted to justify an unprofitable life for the glory of God that was simply centered on the self, they would pull out this refrain, everything is permissible for me. Now, first of all, clearly everything is not permissible for the Christian. If that was the case, then the sins that we were to avoid, and you can see it in verses 9 and 10 in your Bible, those sins of those chapter would have been just a big lie. Secondly, God's people in ages past had a history of making up these clever little refrains which took a good thing, twisted it a bit to justify their bad behavior or to excuse their unprofitable life. For example, Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 4, the people of God being warned by God time and time again, change your bad and unruly behavior. God sends Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a preacher. He preaches warning. He tells them, you guys are supposed to be light to the world, but you're not shining at all. The people, instead of repenting and and changing, use this refrain. And they said it over and over again. Temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. And what they were saying is, God made a covenant with David that the temple would be around forever and that a king from his line would be on that throne forever. Therefore, this is what they would say, no matter what we do, we'll be fine. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, there is no way a foreign power is going to come and destroy us. Temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. But of course, they've forgotten conveniently that the stipulation for the nation was their obedience. So they took a truth, they twisted it a bit to justify their bad behavior. Again, in the days of Jesus and John the Baptist, the same type of thing happened. They were preaching just like Jeremiah. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The religious people of the day could not find a need for themselves to repent. And so they came up with a refrain. We are the children of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. In other words, back off John and back off Jesus. We are just fine. And of course, John the Baptist's reply was, God can make these stones into children of Abraham, so your need to repent remains. The third example in light of this refrain, everything is permissible for me, comes from the Apostle Paul himself. Because the Apostle Paul would be very, very happy to affirm the tremendous freedom that every Christian amasses and has because of their conversion. In fact, he wrote a whole book, Galatians that was dipped in this theme of Christian freedom. Let me just give you one text from the verse. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and don't let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. In other words, what Paul was saying was, don't get all tied up in knots and all these bondages that are part and parcel of every other religion, including Judaism. Because other religions, either preceding Christianity, that were surrounding Christianity at this time, or that would come after Christianity, have always given a set of rules. A set of rules which if the person kept perfectly, it either gave them hope for salvation, or it moved them up the ranks in their salvation. But not so with Christianity. And that, of course, is Paul's great cry. Uh, Jesus Christ saves by substitution only. 
Salvation is of grace, all of it only. Salvation does not hang on what we might do, could do, or have done. But the Christian salvation hangs completely on what God has done and the sending of His Son to hang on a cross and bleed for our sins. So yes, the, the believer, it's inherent in our salvation. We'll, we'll put up a battle to avoid evil. Yes, Christian freedom is given so that we can obey God and serve others. And yes, a, a believer will seek to live a profitable life on some level for their King, Savior, and friend, Jesus. But not in order that we, we, we might be saved. And not even in order that somehow we'll move up the ladder. No, not that we might be saved, but to indicate and because we are saved. So I want you to see that the bigger issue here in these verses is Christian freedom. Christian rights. Is everything permissible for me? Sexual immorality is the example, and we'll get to that next week, all spared and Lord willing. But the key to this text is, is everything truly permissible for me. So, so here we are again, the past few weeks, when we got to this passage in the early part of the, of the, of the chapter, excuse me, that was talking about homosexuality, we all thought we were just going to get a big, huge sermon about how bad homosexuality is. But we got something far different. And now here we are again with sexual immorality. We'll get to that. But the key here, the key is Christian freedom. And so that takes us to our first point. Number one, the problem Paul addresses and the problem that Paul is addressing is how these Christians were answering the question, can a, Christi- a Christian do anything they like because of grace? Right? That's the title. How should we now live in light of our conversion? Is everything actually permissible for me? That's the question. And in this, Paul has two groups in the Corinthian church. And they need some clarity. One group. One group wanting to make sure that the answer to that question Is everything permissible for me is a big fat no, come up with a big long list. Thus, they fall into legalism. Legalism, where we create our own standards of a righteousness that makes us either right with God or moves up up the ladder with God. Legalism is wrong. The other group wanting to make sure that the answer to the question, is everything permissible for me, is a big fat yes, put out a big fat eraser, and erase all of what it means to live for Jesus Christ in these days. Thus, they fall into what's called antinomianism. Anti-against, nomos law. No law, no rules, just love. And by the way, we can define and redefine love any way we like. And Paul knows that in the church, he has both legalists and antinomianists. So, do you see the problem? If he bends too much in one direction or the other, he'll confuse God's grace in Jesus. He will confuse the very gospel he's been proclaiming, and he could potentially, and this is very important for us, I think, he could potentially put the kibosh on Christian freedom, all the liberties that we should enjoy because Jesus won those for us. So John Stott on this says, Walking in the Spirit is always a matter of striving the middle and narrow course between too much license and too many rules and regulations. And you know and I know that despite the passage of time, things are pretty much the same. Typically in most churches, they will either tend to lean one way or the other. Christians in most churches will tend to lead one way 
or the other. There are some of us who would react to the phrase, everything is permissible for me, by immediately coming up with rules and regulations and qualifications, qualifications to kind of keep that thing in check. Others of us, we could use that refrain, just like the Corinthian church was, and we would use it as a maxim to justify any activity, any undertaking in our lives, no matter what, even if it's lawful, because we say, it's my life, it's my choice, I should be able to do what I want. Let me give you an example. I think it will help, I don't, I'm not sure. So earlier this week on a Tuesday morning, very early Tuesday morning, I was listening to a lovely song. And listening to a lovely song, I was thinking about my lovely wife. And I thought, it would be really great to dance with my wife to this song. Okay, legalists, take it easy just for a second, let me finish. And so I started picturing my wife and I dancing to the song. And, you know, you'll never see it, but I'm just saying, I was picturing the thing in my head. It was fun. And so in my meditations about the dance, along comes a legalist. Clipboard. He's got his checklist. This is her dress, three fingers, two fingers, one fingers. He's getting out a tape measure. Is this, is that. Is your shirt buttoned up all the way? I mean, you can move, but you can't really move. You know what I mean? Okay. That's the legalist. Then I look to my left, and there's the antinomianist. And he's like, just let it loose, Joe. Just let it out. Let your shirt down and get your hips moving. And if you've got a jacket, throw it off and swing it. Use your Christian freedom. And then in the meditation, I looked at my wife. And she said, see, that's why I can't take you anywhere. See? <laughs> Beyond what is lawful and unlawful to do, Paul's later on in a letter will say, listen, Christian, you can, you can liberate yourself from your personal rights. You, actually, you've never known such freedom. Liberate yourself from your personal liberties for the glory of Jesus Christ, for a useful life. You can, you can actually choose the highest good over good. You can actually choose the common good over good. Because, and please listen carefully, Yes, there are some things we do that are not bad. They are just not best. And when they are done, they are not profitable for the glory of Christ whatsoever. And I think it is a tremendous burden. It is a tremendously difficult task for the Christian to come to that end in our day. I mean, our times are just like Corinthian Big business and big stuff and lots of freedom. And for us to choose the best over the good is hard. So that's point number one. That's the problem that Paul addresses. What is the nature of Christian freedom? How do you stop the abuse and how do you stop the evidence of the abuse? And here, a sexual immorality, how's that going to happen? Well, to help us, then he gives pictures and that's our second point the picture Paul provides and the picture then he provides which gives us the needed answer on the question and what we're going to spend the remainder of our time in come in verses 19 and 20 because verses 19 and 20 give us the strength behind why sexual purity is so important but also in just two verses you have at the core how a Christian is to live and decide so verses 19 and 20 four verses or chapters 5 and 6, it's a nutshell of everything, but also, this is at the core. How should we live in light of our conversion? And Paul gives an exact answer. So if you'll 
If your Bibles are open, you can see for the sixth time now in the sixth chapter, Paul uses that phrase, verse 19, do you not know? Four words, English, two words, Greek, oikos, if you want to know that. Do you not know? And he's asking this question as a rhetorical device. In other words, he, he applies a picture, okay, but he's going to affirm a gospel truth. Because when he says, do you not know, he, he's not saying, hasn't anybody told you this? Because he knows that they've been taught this. So the problem in Corinth, and, and again, pay attention to here, it's not an absence of information, but it's an absence of application of that information. Here's the principle. Whenever there's information, without any reasonable application, there will always be spiritual dissipation. In other words, when we sit and listen and do not apply what we heard, indulgences, depravity, or spiritual atrophy will come in and each of those things on some level are a sin. Again, once we receive the truth as it is in Jesus and we make no reasonable application of that truth, sometimes winning, sometimes losing, but always trying to apply. In essence, if we're just dead listeners, then our dead listening sets into motion, whether we like it or not, a series of self-deceptions and sin, and then an unprofitable life for the glory of Christ and for the good of humanity begins to unfold. And you see, I think that's why you see so many Christians running around today trying to get help from everywhere, if you would, but the church. Either it's an absence of a biblical information or, or a reasonable application of the information that they receive from the Scriptures. And so what you have then, just like you have in Corinth, you have a fully set table, but malnourished Christians who will not eat so they can apply, so they can live. And see, that's their problem. Verse 12, everything is permissible for me. And when you have that mindset and you're not sure of the gospel, two things will happen. You'll become a muddle-headed legalist. You've got your clipboard. You're checking things off, making sure that everything is just the way you really like it because you want everybody to know that you're really on it for Jesus. Or you become a dreadful antinomianist thinking it's all good, even if it's bad, because after all, uh, me and Jesus have our own thing going. We do not need anybody telling us what it's all about, especially somebody behind the box. That was Corinth. That was Corinth. So I want you to see, when Paul begins this instruction, he does not go for the heart first. So he's not saying, what's the matter with you? Don't you love Jesus? And parents, think about that when we're training our kids. He does not go for the heart first. He goes and aims for the head. He's going to make an appeal to their mind. He's going to give them theology and not sentimentality. He's going to give us pictures, verse 19 and 20. And in those pictures, there are four foundational truths that we must know. They're right in there in the text, verse 19a. Here are four foundational truths that will never change because of our context, They will never change because of our circumstance and they will not change even as the ages and stages of our life change. These are eternal truths. Number one, your body, verse 19a, your body is a temple. God lives there. Verse 19b, you are not your own. Verse 20a, you were bought at a price. Verse 20b, therefore, make much of God. Glorify God in your body. And so to reaffirm that, Paul gives two pictures. Picture number one is a temple. 
Verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit not being in every body, but is in every Christian who is in you whom you've received from God. Now, previously when Paul said it, he said it in chapter 3, verse 16, and he was talking about the church collectively, not, not sticks and bricks, flesh and blood. Church, your body, your church body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now he refers to the individual as God's temple, where the very Spirit of God dwells. In other words, Paul says to the individual Christian, your individual body is the Holy Spirit's temple and God dwells there. Now, if you're thinking and you, you ask, you want to ask a good question, one of the questions you would say is, why did Paul say body? Why didn't he say, um, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Why did he not say that instead of choosing body? Well, let me give you the reason why. In the context that Paul was in, there was a thought that said that your body and your soul are disconnected. So whatever you do to your body really doesn't matter. So you can do what you like with it or to it because it does not affect what comes after it. Because the only thing that affects your eternal destiny is what happens to your soul. So their body to them might as well have been the devil's playground. Because they would say, inside of me, my soul is the real me, and my body is just holding me back. And their response to this, because as you can expect, that line of thinking is not only horrible for the psyche, but it's bad for any kind of a proper living. Because the very psyche of the person would be affected by that line of thinking. Because you have to think, how did God make humanity? Well, God gave humanity a conscience. He gave us a moral compass. He did this because he wants people to know and to feel when we get it wrong in order that we would cry out to him. So, for example, in sexual sin, we may escape physical trouble, but there will not be any escape from psychological trouble that is inherent in that type of sin. So the people's response then would be either, uh, my body doesn't matter, my soul's the only thing. And so they would come up with things like asceticism. So they would feel guilt and they would deny the body things to try to remove that guilt. So I'll do a few things there, deny myself of a few things, and it'll make it all better. Or they would treat their body, as we said, with neglect. And so they'd say, I can do anything I want with anyone I want, anytime I want, because my body really doesn't matter. And again, the idea is that what you did with your body did not have any moral significance on you whatsoever. And what happened to the body then didn't impact their soul. And so that was their wheelhouse. That is how they lived and that's how they decided. Now I'm going to suggest to you that the pendulum in our day has swung the other way so that the care of the body is much more prized now than the care of the soul. But that's another sermon for another time. However, now that these Corinthians have come to faith in Jesus Christ, what happened was they did not fully disconnect themselves from that horrible line of thinking. So they took it into the church and they brought it within the framework of how they lived and decided. <clears throat> now I'm going to tell you this a couple of more times as we move along in each chapter. But one of the things that you should be surprised at is that the Corinthian church was a very, very small church, scholars tell us, for such a very, very large city. And as you think about that, one good reason would be if you're a married couple and, and you go into that context, the church of Jesus Christ itself could be the very thing that could put your marriage at risk. It's the same with greed. 
It's the same with slander. Who wants to be part of that fellowship? I mean, who? What sensible people would? And so Paul says, loved ones, I want you to listen. You need to put away that horrible line of thinking. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Yes, there are things unlawful for you to do. Don't do them. Yes, there are things unprofitable for you to do. Don't do them. Your body is the place where God completely, fully dwells by His Spirit. So what does that mean to us? Well, it means at least this. Everywhere we go, everything we see, everything we do, And everything we touch includes and involves the very presence of God in our life. Because your body is a temple. It is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And you see, what that truth should have done for them and can do for us, we can put under two headings. Number one, we could label it privileges. The privilege now of knowing that your body has great worth Simply because God lives there. We are not a piece of meat. Our body shape does not calculate our human worth. We are adopted children of God. We have God-promised certainties. We are granted unquestionable life securities. God himself houses himself in the believer. That's why we're so valuable. That's why we, if you would, are so Worthy, not on the basis of what we do. Please do not go down that line. Not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of whose we are. God lives in my body. Those are the privileges. They come with the responsibilities. The responsibilities were being made a total hash out of by the Corinthian church. Hence their refrain, everything is permissible for me. So that's the first picture that Paul gives. God lives in your body. <laughs> I mean, if you, you just, you want to stop and go, wow, just for a moment, right? Are you kidding me? God lives in my body. My body is God's temple. Second picture that Paul gives is that of a slave in the slave market. End of verse 19. You are not your own. You were bought. You were redeemed, some translations. You were purchased at a price. Some people say we are purchased people. We're not the owner of our bodies. We are not the Lord of our life. We are not the master of our house. People in 21st century America, West, pretty much anywhere, have trouble with that. My body, my choice. I am my own person, free to do as I see fit. So for some people, it's doing whatever they want. For others, it's freedom from any authority. I will not have anybody tell me what to do. Or for others, as they live, like there is actually no consequences and no boundaries and no obligations for anyone in Christ. So get to the day X, whatever day X is, and just let me go. And God says, not so. You are not the owner of your body. That should make us happy. Uh, You weren't the owner of your body before you were in Christ, and you're certainly not the owner of your body after you became in Christ. Question for the Christian. Why am I not the owner of my own body? Why can't I call my own shots? Answer in a word, verse 20, redemption. You were bought, purchased, redeemed at a price. And to explain that word, Paul gives that slave market picture. Verse 20, the word bought, it means to buy back to a state previously enjoyed. So there was a state that we, the Christian, had known 
pre-Christ that we were lost into, uh, slaves to sin, slaves to everything wrong. But in Christ, the Christian has been bought, purchased, to be taken back to the state that we previously enjoyed. Well, who's the purchaser? Well, the purchaser is the Lord Jesus Christ. Two scriptures. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, as a purchaser for the many. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you were redeemed, you were purchased from that empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, not with perishable things such as gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. The Christian now then is redeemed. We're free. We are free not to do anything we like because that is too small of a freedom. Now, do you understand that? We are not free to do anything we like because that freedom is too small. But now we have been redeemed, free to, to live out our true Christian freedom. We are free, finally, to do what we should. We are free, finally, to live for our new master. We are free, finally, to live for the one who bought us. How come? Well, you see, that's one of the wonderful repercussions of grace. Verse 19b, we are not your own. We are not our own. Verse 20b, God is to be glorified in our body. So you then understand why simply verbal affirmations is far short of glorifying God. We need to glorify God, Romans 12:1, with our body. Offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy body and pleasing body to God. In other words, make much of God. Draw attention to God with your soma, with your body, your very essence. Constrain your behavior to that end because of your glorious redemption, which means whatever you do, because Paul's not talking about church work. He's like, if you're changing diapers, if you're at the workplace, if you're on the factory floor, if you're going grocery shopping, if you're in church, whatever it is, glorify God. Make much of God with your body. So if we're going to really, really understand this and to think that we weren't like half purchased or three quarters purchased, but to know that we're fully purchased, we need to get some basic Christian instruction. It's all foundational. Number one, man in his original state was what? We were perfect at the beginning. Adam, our representative, perfect, absolutely free. We walked with God in the cool of the day. Together, holy, free, free to obey God, live in his perfection. The fall of man comes. The fall of man, original sin, and, man, and man's rebellion towards God. Our debt then becomes so great. No one but God himself can save us. Man as man is a slave. A slave to himself. A slave to sin on account of his sin. A slave in the ancient world was a slave for three reasons. Number one, because he was born into it. His mom and dad were slaves. Number two, he was brought into it, uh, the result of a conquering king coming and destroying everything. Or number three, you were brought into slavery as a result of having amassed a huge debt that you could never pay back. Those are the pictures of grace, of our converted, our pre-converted state. We were enslaved. Uh, Our mom and dad, Adam and Eve, they blew it. We were born into slavery. We were brought into slavery. We engineered our own defeat by our sin. And we amassed a debt so great that we could never pay it back. So we're indebted. Either, Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Either it's death for us or we need a redeemer. 
We need someone to purchase us back. Loved ones, the Bible says that the only redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. We started out perfectly. We fell horribly, became a slave to everything wrong, and we needed a hero. (laughs) We needed a redeemer. We needed a rescuer. We needed a, a Messiah. And this Messiah, by his death alone, made it possible that men and women and young people could be redeemed. He could bring us back to the way it was before. You see that, see that reconciliation theme? Reunited. Remember that song, Reunited and It Feels So Good? Back to where it was before we walked with God in the cool of the day. It's dramatic, it's humbling, it's true, and it's powerful. Christ has purchased our complete freedom from our sin and all its penalty by his blood. He paid the price so that we could be free. So here's the sensible question that Paul would ask the Corinthian church. And here's the sensible question that God would ask any church. Why in the world would you use that purchase freedom, won for you by the blood of Jesus Christ, as an excuse to simply do whatever you want? Again, why in the world would you use a purchase freedom, won for you by blood, as an excuse to simply do what you want. You see what he's saying? So yes, we have liberties, but those liberties are controlled and constrained by Jesus. And right there, your conscience is telling on you. Because if you heard that your your liberty is controlled and constrained by Jesus, and you don't really know Jesus, you'll be like, you know, back off, or that's boring. Are you kidding me? But if you know him, if you really know him, then you'd be like, oh, that's good. I need to live under that kind of leadership. I want to live for and with and because that kind of master. Our time is just about done. A couple of things. One, how did Jesus use his freedom when he walked this earth? Well, instead of a throne, he went to a cross. Instead of honor, he chose humility And he said, if you can believe it, that's the way to live. That's the way to live in a fallen body, in a fallen world that isn't forever. Second thing is a story from the Old Testament, actually. It's from the book of Hosea. Most of you will be familiar with this story. It's a lovely story. There was a man named Hosea. He was a man of God. God told Hosea, you need to marry a certain kind of lady. The lady's name was Gomer. Gomer was an adulteress. And this marriage was to be a picture of God's faithfulness to unfaithful Israel. So God was going to use this marriage as a description of how he would save his people, but ultimately how he would save all people, Jew and Gentile. Hosea is a picture of God. Gomer is a picture of unfaithful Israel. This is a foreshadowing of how Christ would save his people. And the more unfaithful Gomer was, the more untamed she was, Hosea would say to her, come home, honey. I love you, honey. He would pursue and pursue and pursue her. And that is a picture of how God pursues us. So the height of the story goes like this. She she gets back into slavery. She leaves him. She goes back into slavery. She goes back into her old way of life. Hosea goes back to the marketplace. He, he wants to buy her back. God said, buy her back. There's a bigger issue, Hosea, than just your life. Buy her back. And so the way that slaves were sold in the marketplace in the ancient world, they were stripped completely naked and put on the block. And there she was in the public square, completely naked. 
Surely some yo-yo, right, would have just, I'd just love to use that kind of woman and, and abuse that kind of woman. And a few pieces of silver is all he would need to do it. So the bidding starts. 50, says one man. 51, says Hosea. 54, says another man. 58, says Hosea. 60, says another. 100, says Hosea. You know how it goes. Going once. Going twice. Three times. Sold to Hosea. And so what does Hosea do? Get in that house, you little hussy. Immediately she's clothed. She's taken home. She's cleaned up. And he says to her, I will be yours. Will you be mine? Did she deserve this? Not at all. Did we deserve our salvation? Not at all. We were like her. In our sin, we were on the auction block of the world, sold to the highest bidder. Christ comes and pays the price for our redemption by his blood. Well, what happens? Well, not nothing much. (laughs) New clothes, new graces, new powers. If you would, a new father. And he says, I will live with you and you will live with me and I will be with you forever and ever and I will always forgive you. Always. That's grace. That's Christianity. So let me ask you a question. What is a reasonable and sensible response to such love? Nothing? Rebellion? An unprofitable life centered on the self? Loved ones. In Christ. Good news. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. Therefore, logical conclusion, honor God. Honor God with your body. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we pray for the grace to get this right moment by moment. Give us the grace to understand not only what is lawful and unlawful for the Christian to do, but also give us the grace to understand what is profitable and unprofitable in our Christian existence. Our context, and you know this, God, is making the latter hard. We have many freedoms. We're glad for them. But they can be used and abused for an unprofitable life. Give us clearly, God, the yeses and nos that we need so that we can live a life that honors you with our body. Thank you for loving us so much. In Christ's name, amen.